is November 14th. The year is 1902. You're out hunting bears on a sort of vacation trip with a group of men near the small city of Onward, Mississippi. In your company is the governor of Mississippi, Andrew Longineau. The guide of the hunt is a man named Holt Collier. At this point, everyone in the group, including you, has hunted a bear except one of the men. It strikes you as almost ironic because even though it was scheduled to be a 10-day hunting trip, that one man had said, I must see a live bear on the first day. You all take your lunch break, and sometime later, you hear a bugle in the distance. You go towards the sound, and you see Collier standing with his hunting dogs by a watering hole in a black willow tree. That is, a black willow tree with a bear tied to it. By now, the other men have come over too, and Collier invites that one man that hasn't hunted a bear yet to untie the bear from the tree and fire his rifle to kill it. But the man declines, saying that would be unsportsmanlike. Now is the part of the story where I tell you that news of this event ends up in newspapers around the country, and that on November 17th, a political cartoonist named Clifford Berryman publishes a cartoon in the Washington Post that satirizes how the man refused to kill the bear. In the cartoon, the spared bear is a helpless little cub. The news and the cartoon become so popular that a Russian immigrant couple in Brooklyn, New York, sew a plush velvet into the shape of a little bear to display in the window of their penny store. People keep asking them if they can buy the stuffed bear, and the stuffed bears based on the Washington Post cartoon become so popular that eventually the couple abandons their penny store so they can focus on making and selling these stuffed bears. And that's the story of how plush bears became such a popular toy. Except, here's the problem. That is what happened on the famous hunting trip. I mean, you can read about it yourself on the U.S. National Park Service's website. That is essentially what happened. But, well, it's not exactly what happened. You see, I'll spare you the gruesome details, but saying that that bear had been injured by the time it was tied to the black willow tree is a bit of an understatement. And what's usually left out from the story is that after the man refused to shoot the bear, he ordered that it be killed to be put out of its misery. Some say that he even told Holt Collier to slit the bear's throat. We know that in the end, Collier killed the bear with his hunting knife, and it died. But that's not the kind of detail that's great for newspaper articles praising the sympathy and sportsmanship of an alleged bear savior. Or for newspaper cartoons or, as a matter of fact, for origin stories of children's toys. It just makes the simple narrative of the greatness of the one man that refused to shoot the bear more... complicated? A little less black and white and a bit more gray. And to put it bluntly, complicated doesn't always sell. Needless to say, they left out that detail about the bear's fate from the article on this story on the U.S. National Park Service's website. Oh, and by the way, that so-called good sportsmanship enthusiast that refused to shoot the bear? That was Theodore Roosevelt, 
also known as Teddy Roosevelt, and that was the origin story of Teddy's Bear, now known as Teddy Bears. I mean, let's be honest, for the story of how a man allegedly saved a bear on a hunting trip to become a U.S. pop culture phenomenon, it had to involve someone at least a little famous. So that was all very interesting, but why did I just take three and a half minutes to tell you that a compelling argument could be made that noted avid hunter Teddy Roosevelt had bear blood on his hands? My point is that with every story we tell, some things inevitably get left out, and this shapes how we understand the characters and what happened. I could have just told you that at the very beginning of the podcast, and you probably would have nodded to yourself and thought, hmm, that makes sense, or, well, yeah, I knew that. But maybe part of me just really wanted to tell you about the whole teddy bear thing. Anyway, if you've ever taken an American history class, you may already know a thing or two about Theodore Roosevelt. He's pretty much known as the National Parks guy and the Trust Buster, on account of how he created a bunch of national parks and busted a lot of trusts. He's actually often ranked among the 10 best U.S. presidents to grace the White House. All in all, I would say he's pretty popular, or at least has a lot going for him legacy-wise. I mean, he made it onto Mount Rushmore, that's not too bad. He has a national park named after him, naturally. He also has a 90-acre island on the Potomac River as a memorial for him. Perhaps the biggest testament of all to his legacy is that the largest subspecies of elk in North America, Cervus canadensis roosevelti, is named after yours truly, Theodore Roosevelt. Okay, so now that we know Roosevelt has his fair share of statues and monuments, let's look a bit more into what people say about him now. Now, I hate to suggest that this source might be slightly overly inclined to say positive things about U.S. presidents, but let's hear what's said about Roosevelt on the White House website. With the assassination of President McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt, not quite 43, became the youngest president in the nation's history. He brought new excitement and power to the presidency as he vigorously led Congress and the American public towards progressive reforms and a strong foreign policy. He took the view that the president, as a steward of the people, should take whatever action necessary for the public good unless expressly forbidden by law or the Constitution. I did not usurp power, he wrote, but I did greatly broaden the use of executive power. During the Spanish-American War, Roosevelt was Lieutenant Colonel of the Rough Rider Regiment, which he led on a charge at the Battle of San Juan. He was one of the most conspicuous heroes of the war. As president, Roosevelt held the ideal that government should be the great arbiter of the conflicting economic forces in the nation, especially between capital and labor, guaranteeing justice to each and dispensing favors to none. Roosevelt emerged spectacularly as a trust buster by forcing the desolation of a great railroad combination in the Northwest. Other antitrust suits under the Sherman Act followed. 
Roosevelt steered the United States more actively into world politics. He liked to quote his favorite proverb, speak softly and carry a big stick. Aware of the strategic need for a shortcut between the Atlantic and the Pacific, Roosevelt ensured the construction of the Panama Canal. His colliery to the Monroe Doctrine prevented the establishment of foreign bases in the Caribbean and arrogated the sole right of intervention in Latin America to the United States. Some of Theodore Roosevelt's most effective achievements were in conservation. He added enormously to national forests in the West, reserved lands for public use, and fostered great irrigation projects. He crusaded endlessly on matters big and small, exciting audiences with his high-pitched voice, jutting jaw, and pounding fist. The life of strenuous endeavor was a must for those around him, as he romped with his five younger children and led ambassadors on hike through Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C. Okay, now I'm going to tell you about some things that the White House, and as a matter of fact, most Orthodox articles about Roosevelt, don't say. Namely, that Roosevelt was extremely racist, especially against Native Americans, a white supremacist, an imperialist, and to top it all off, a eugenicist. For example, remember all those national parks and forests Roosevelt is so famous for creating? Well, 86 million acres of that land had been the home of different Native American tribes. As one historian put it, Roosevelt's signature achievements of environmental conservation and the establishment of national parks came at the expense of the people who had stewarded the land for centuries. Of course, this didn't particularly matter to Roosevelt because he viewed Native Americans as mere savages. I would now like to take a second to remind you of how that White House biography of him had said he was committed to quote-unquote, guaranteeing justice to each. Interesting how the guy who said, I am an American, free-born and free-bred, where I acknowledge no man as my superior, except for his own worth, or as my inferior, except for his own demerit also said, I don't go so far as to think that the only good Indian is the dead Indian, but I believe nine out of every ten are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the tenth. The most vicious cowboy has more moral principle than the average Indian. Yeah, um, guys, Theodore Roosevelt had some pretty problematic beliefs that don't exactly scream equality. Here's some other lesser discussed parts of Roosevelt's presidency in the words of other historians. Roosevelt's attitudes towards race also had a direct impact on his foreign policy as president. Because he believed that white Anglo-Saxons had reached the pinnacle of social achievement, he thought they were in a position to teach the other peoples of the world who had failed to reach such heights. The United States would help tutor and uplift the Western Hemisphere. That worldview formed the foundation of Roosevelt's vocal support of American imperialism. And in the White House, he presided over an expanding overseas empire that included territories won in the Spanish-American War, including Puerto Rico, Guam, Cuba, and the Philippines. His Roosevelt colliery to the Monroe Doctrine, also famously 
known as his big stick foreign policy, laid the foundation for a more interventionist policy in Latin America. He also extended American influence in the region by fomenting a rebellion in Panama that resulted in American construction of the Panama Canal. And his desire to reset racial hierarchies wasn't limited to the Western Hemisphere. It is of incalculable importance that America, Australia, and Siberia should pass out of the hands of their red, black, and yellow aboriginal owners, Roosevelt wrote in his 1889 book, The Winning of the West, and become the heritage of the dominant world races. Roosevelt's racial philosophy of white superiority dovetailed with his support of the eugenics movement which advocated selective breeding to engineer a race of people with more desirable characteristics and sterilization of quote-unquote less desirable people, such as criminals, people with developmental disabilities, and for some, people of color. Society has no business to permit degenerates to reproduce, he wrote in 1913. Someday we will realize that the prime duty, the inescapable duty of the good citizen of the right type is to leave his or her blood behind him in the world, and that we have no business to permit the perpetuation of citizens of the wrong type." End quote. This is all to say that much like certain details are left out of the teddy bear origin story to make things a little prettier, saying Theodore Roosevelt's legacy is that he was a conservationist that we can thank for many national parks and forests also leaves out critical details from the story of him. Teddy Roosevelt did make progressive reforms and contributed greatly to the conservation movement in the US, but the truth about who he was is a lot more complicated and depends on what stories about him we pay attention to and which we choose to ignore or are forced to ignore because unflattering details have been left out or the stories go untold altogether. So was Theodore Roosevelt a great president or a cruel one? Was he a preserver of life or a killer? Should he be praised for his accomplishments or criticized? Does he represent problematic ideals of the past? Or did he usher in a new era of equality through the reforms he helped initiate? Even though history is often taught as the facts of how the actions of great men shape the world, it's much more complicated than that. Again, more gray than black and white. But at the end of the day, it's a lot easier to simply carve the faces of those that have always been hailed as heroes into mountains of stone and to honor them for the values we tell ourselves they stood for. Because history is complicated, and Theodore Roosevelt is complicated. But you see, complicated doesn't always sell, and sometimes we just want to have a cute little backstory to tell kids about the origin of the teddy bear. I've been Tina Durkapsinski. Thank you for listening to the debut episode and season finale of Teddy Talks, putting the TR in truth. A special thank you to the Cervus canadensis roosevelti, North America's largest subspecies of elk named after Teddy Roosevelt, for sponsoring today's episode.
My favorite mildly off-topic fun fact that didn't make it into the show is that after Roosevelt left office, toy companies hoped to make an even bigger fortune through a toy associated with the next president, William Howard Taft. However, the new William Towered half-stuffed possum that was created, named Billy Possum, was a massive flop. And to this day, children still have teddy bears, and, well, you don't see a lot of kids cuddling toy Billy Possums.